everybody. Thanks for joining me on episode 283 of The Virtual Couch. Today, we're going to talk about the science behind happiness. One of my favorite topics, but actually two things, is happiness in general. I love talking about happiness, the elusive goal of trying to find happiness in the most effective way. And I love evidence-based models of psychology. So we're going to hit on all cylinders today, and we're going to get right to it. It only took me 282 previous episodes to realize that I really do want to just get to the topic at hand. And I know I would use these excuses of got to pay the bills and that sort of thing. But hopefully, if you're finding me and you enjoy the content that I put out on the virtual couch, that you'll dig a little bit deeper. Go to TonyOverbay.com. I do have a magnetic marriage course that's about to start up and a recovery program and a book and all those wonderful things. But I want to get to the topic. Although I just said that, I think it's tomorrow or maybe it's even today and this will go out the day after. But my new podcast, Waking Up to Narcissism, which the trailer did get a tremendous amount of downloads and, and follows and all those wonderful things. So I'm grateful for that. But go find it. And it's part of the Virtual Couch Network. And so we'll just leave that there. But today I'm going to talk about the science of happiness. And I'm doing what I... Here's the part where I feel very old, where I what the kids, I believe, call a reaction video or a reaction podcast. That sounds dramatic. But what I really am going to do is I'm going to talk about an article that someone wrote about a book. So I'm even two layers removed from the actual book itself. The book is uh, a book called The How of Happiness, A Scientific Approach to Getting the Life You Want. And that is by a, a wonderful clinician named... Sonia, and it's L-Y-U-B-O-M-I-R-S-K-Y. And I butchered this in a previous recording about 20 minutes ago to the point of where I, I started over. So Sonia Libarivsky, her book, I just did it again, didn't I? I actually went and looked up YouTube videos of Sonia speaking to see how people would pronounce her name. And I feel like people alluded to the fact that that they couldn't pronounce her name. And then they said, Hey, here's Sonia. And uh, she has a great book. So I just did the same thing. But her book, The How of Happiness, the article that I'm going to refer to, though, is by a professor of social psychology at Arizona State University named Douglas Kenrick, PhD. And he has a blog on psychologytoday.com called Sex, Murder, and the Meaning of Life. And it's a really good blog. The more that I looked at what Dr. Kenrick is doing, he, he just comments on a lot of very interesting things, does his own research. And so I'll have links to Dr. Kenrick's blog, as well as this article, Seven Scientifically Supported Steps to Happiness. And that's what he wrote about Sonia's book, The How of Happiness. So if you're thoroughly confused, that's okay, because the real point is we're going to talk about what Dr. Kenrick found as his top seven takeaways from that book, The How of Happiness, A Scientific Approach to Getting the Life You Want. And shockingly, if you uh, follow have followed the virtual couch for a little while, I am going to put the acceptance and commitment therapy spin on the how of happiness. Because I honestly, I look at these things where it says, here's how to be happy. Any article that is, is something to this effect. And I often then apply it as a therapist who has now been seeing clients for uh, 15 plus years and who has done a dramatic shift in my own therapy model from cognitive behavioral therapy of just change your thought and be happy to then realizing that that maybe doesn't work for a lot of people. And a better way, in my opinion, is this acceptance and commitment therapy way, or more like you're having thoughts and feelings and emotions because you're a human being. And so it's normal to have those thoughts and feelings and emotions. But now what do you do with them? And often one of the biggest challenges for happiness, in my opinion, 
is we're going after the wrong mark that too often we're doing these socially compliant versions of happiness where we say, I know I should be happy and therefore I should do these things that everyone else does that makes them happy, or at least it looks like it makes them happy on social media, Instagram, Facebook, uh, TikTok, all those kind of wonderful things. And if they look happy, then I should be happy doing those things as well. But too often, again, a socially compliant goal is something that we do because we think that we're supposed to, or we think that if we don't do it, we're going to let somebody else. And I'm talking let somebody down from a spouse to a parent to even even God. And so a socially compliant goal is a really deep concept to embrace, but it can be so liberating to say, why am I doing these things? Why am I doing something that that I think will make me happy if I really feel at my core, it's not something that really matters to me? So let's go through these seven things and I'm going to throw an acceptance and commitment therapy spin to them. And, and in the vein of a true reaction video or a reaction podcast, I tried not to really do a lot of thought beforehand because I, I really just want to be in the moment as I read through these. So number one, Dr. Kenrick says from Sonia's book that his, one of his biggest takeaways is do something nice for someone else. And he said, when he asked, this is Dr. Kenrick, when he asked Sonia to nominate her own favorite positive psychology findings with practical implications for other people's lives, she responded, do acts of kindness for others. And in other words, make someone else happier. She notes that there's plenty of research evidence that doing things for others makes you happier. And then in Dr. Kenrick's blog, he has sent some links to some of that evidence-based data. And I followed a couple of those studies and they're incredible studies. And so here's where I feel like the acceptance and commitment therapy piece comes into play. If you feel stuck, if you feel like you're not even sure what to do. Now, I often talk about, and I did a podcast a couple of weeks ago of let values be your guide. So if you have a value of curiosity, or if you have a value of knowledge, or if you have a value of connection with others, and you're feeling down, or you're feeling stuck, or you're not feeling happy, one of the best things you can do is start to take action on one of those values. And I gave an example of being at a basketball game and feeling a little bit flat and then pulling out my phone and then looking up some, to me, fascinating data about the players on the court and finding out all kinds of things about them and then sharing that with the people around me. And so I literally was not trying to stop a thought. I was not trying to change a thought. I was not trying to say to myself, why am I thinking these thoughts? Because I was just thinking them because I was in the situation that I was in. But then I turned and did something that mattered to me. I took action on that. So what I like about her number one finding, do something nice for someone else, is it really does get you out of your mind. It gets you out of trying to think your way out of a thinking problem. So if you are feeling stuck or not happy, and then you think, I, I can do something for someone else, I feel like that one is a pretty all-encompassing goal in a positive way, meaning that I can implement my value into any type of helping someone else. So if I believe that helping something someone else is to share a funny joke with them and I have a value of humor, then I'm not only tapping into one of my values, but I'm also making a connection with someone outside myself. If I have a value of service and then I run over and I just mow someone's lawn, so I'm doing something for them, even if they didn't ask me to mow their lawn, then I'm doing something for someone else and I'm doing something of value for me. So I really like that first one, do something nice for someone else. And I would encourage you to do something nice for someone else based on something that you find connection with that uh, sounds uh, selfish, but it's not self selfish. Um, self care is not selfish. And I would put this one under the self care. I would put this one under the raising my emotional baseline of taking action and serving someone and doing it 
based on something that, that really I connect with. Because, and I'm going to think of an example on the fly here, if you don't really care much about someone's yard, if you don't really like yard work, if you don't really, if you feel like you grew up and your parents made such a big deal about the yard being perfect that you have a negative association with yard work, but then you go serve someone else and then you do that by jumping in and doing yard work for them, there's a chance it's not going to be a bad thing, but there's also a pretty good chance that that would fall into one of those socially compliant goals. You're doing it because you think that you have to. And so that's going to rob a little bit of that moment or rob a little bit of you being present in that moment. So try to find something that matters that, that is based on one of your values and then go out there and do something nice for someone else with that activity. Number two, Dr. Kenrick said one of his takeaways from her book, The How of Happiness, is express gratitude on a regular basis. And he said this was, uh, this was another bit of well-supported advice that Sonia gave in response to his query. And of course, he says that he's grateful for that advice. He said after the first time he read her book, his wife suggested that they institute a nightly ritual of a thankful list. And he said, we've been doing that for over a decade now. Before their son's bedtime reading, it's one of the highlights of the day. And in Sonia's book, she lists several ways that gratitude boosts happiness by helping you savor positive experiences, for example, as well as boosting your self-esteem, boosting social bonds, and disrupting your negative emotions. Brilliant. On all levels, this one's brilliant. And the science of gratitude is solid. I've done a couple of episodes on that, and I won't name the large corporation, but I get a chance now to do some trainings for large corporations. And there was one that they brought me on to do a video training. I remember it was about the beginning, kind of close to the beginning of the pandemic. And I did a video training with a lot of corporate executives for a very large corporation. And they wanted me to speak to the science of gratitude. And at that time, it wasn't that I didn't believe in the science of gratitude, but I hadn't really invested a lot of my own time in, in studying the research. And it didn't take long to find that research that Dr. Kenrick's talking about here that really does show that there are so many positive effects to expressing gratitude. And where I throw the acceptance and commitment therapy layer over this is to express gratitude for the things that you really feel a connection with or the things that you really appreciate. And I like how in this, in the article where he talks about this thankful list and that it helps you boost your self-esteem, build social bonds and disrupt your negative emotions. And I really like that phrase, disrupt your negative emotions. So it's not saying try to control your negative emotions or stop your negative emotions, but it's saying, hey, I see you negative emotion. Today might've been a pretty crummy day, but give me one thing that you're grateful for. And if you were grateful for the opportunity to spend time with your spouse, then express that. And, and I'll give you an example. So yesterday was Labor Day here in the US and I did come in and I, I did a little bit of, I saw a couple of clients, had some work to do, recorded a couple of things for some future projects and then went home and uh, went on a bike ride with my wife. And we, we covered 20 something miles. It was a hundred degrees. We vowed we'll never do that again because it was a little bit too hot. But man, we had an amazing shared experience of, of going through this challenge together. And we were cracking jokes. We were up, we were down. And it was just this amazing connected experience, even though the experience itself was really difficult. And so I, I love expressing gratitude to my wife for her, her adventurous nature or our willingness to have this shared experience. And so I was truly grateful for that. And I was grateful for that. It, it was something that really mattered to me. I could say, hey, I'm grateful for the way that put, wiped off the counters last night, which I am grateful for. But I feel like that's one of those things that we do just to make sure that we end the evening with a clean home and the, and the emotional peace that comes with that. 
but I was really grateful for the shared experience that we had around this activity. And so it really does help you build this social bond or disrupt negative emotions. If I was feeling a little bit flat last night, which I was because back into the grind today and long hours and, and a lot of things coming up ahead, but I was just grateful to be able to spend that time doing some meaningful activity based on a value, even of fitness that I have with someone that I really cared about. Number three, cultivate an optimistic outlook on life. And I really feel like the wording here is very key, cultivating an optimistic outlook on life. I know we can talk about the people that are optimists, people that are pessimists, people that look at the glass half full or glass half empty, but that's why I enjoy cultivate because if it is something that doesn't come natural to you, if just exuding positivity or looking at the glass as half full isn't something that comes natural, then you can absolutely notice that, note that, don't beat yourself up about it, and then start to cultivate an optimistic outlook. So if you already follow those first two things we've talked about, if you're doing something for somebody else that really matters to you and you're keeping a gratitude list or being a little more thankful about something each day, then I feel like that's part of the steps of cultivating an optimistic outlook on life. In his article, Dr. Kenrick says that Sonia has done research with a woman named Laura King who herself conducted research in which people imagine their best possible future selves. So what would you be doing in 10 years if everything went perfectly in your life? It's worth trying for yourself if you are listening right now to do it yourself. If you know, just step back for a second, then this isn't going, I'm not going to try to trick you and say, aha, well then do all those things if that's what you really want. But just step back and, and do a little bit of a visualization of what would you be doing in 10 years if everything went perfectly in your life? And the research suggests that imagining an ideal future actually increases your inclination to persist toward those goals and then to cope a little better with setbacks. And back to my world of acceptance and commitment therapy, oftentimes I will have someone do exactly this. One of the ways when people say that they're not really quite sure what their values are, when I love preaching, let values be your guide, turn to a value-based activity when you're feeling down, don't try to think your way out of a thinking problem. All of those wonderful things, all those things I love saying, people will often say, well, I'm not really sure what my values are. And I understand that. And even the, the unsurety of what your values are is a story that your brain is holding on to. Because if I can ruminate and wonder and worry about, I don't even know what my values are, then what I'm not doing is taking action on trying to figure out what my values are. One of the best things you can do if you're unsure of your values is just walk outside and start talking to people. And, and you are going to start to find out what really matters to you, whether it's what you like talking about, what you don't like talking about, what you like doing or what you don't like doing. But one of the things that can keep us stuck is sitting and trying to think about that. We, where we feel like I have to figure this out before I go out and, and discover my values. When in reality, going out and doing or going out and trying to figure out values is actually the way to do so. And you can bring all your negative thoughts along with you if you'd like, or not even your thoughts along with you. So imagining this ideal future self, again, actually increasing people's inclination to persist toward their goals and cope with setbacks is that sometimes I'll even say, hey, tell me about somebody that you really care about, somebody that you really connect with, somebody that you really look up to. And what is it about that person that you connect with or that you look up to? And that will often help you understand what those values are. A grandpa that you really admire, what is it you admire about grandpa? Is it because grandpa really kindly speaks his mind? Does he say the things that you wish everybody would say at the family reunion? And if you say, well, he can get away with that because he's older, well, then we're maybe fusing to this. You have to be older to be able to really express yourself or be authentic. So 
often, if you can visualize where you want to be in 10 years, it's a little bit of that same concept. If I can visualize that I want to be retired on the beach with my wife, which I really do, then when I'm feeling down or stuck or lonely or flat, then what are those things that I could do that would just even start to point me in the right direction that might get me closer toward that goal of in 10 years walking on the beach with my wife? Okay, let's go to number four. Four is a very, very good one. Avoid in invidious social comparisons. So Sonia's own research suggests that happy people are pretty oblivious to other people who seem to be doing better than them. And that's hard to do. I, I recognize that. It's very hard to do. Dr. Kenrick says on the other side of the coin, materialistic attempts to keep up with the Joneses or the, he said Gateses are actually a great way to make yourself feel even more depressed. And he has a list of research articles that speak to that. And I think that that is so true. I talk often when I get to speak about how did we get to the point where we can feel more depressed or more anxious? How do we get that way? And a lot of times in just a real quick version or a simple version or answer that is that our, our brains were designed initially not to be a feel good, happy device, but to be a don't get killed device that we evolved from this mindset of if we turn the corner and we aren't prepared, that there could be a saber-toothed tiger or a woolly mammoth or a band of marauders or thieves. So things like anxiety are there as a warning that they're there so that we will be on the lookout and always weary and ready of things that may happen. Even though now our modern minds have evolved to the point where we're worried about everything under the sun. We're worried about losing our job or falling into poor health or getting a ticket or any of those things. And so we're so worried about things that we find ourselves often in this constant state of anxiety where our brains are right on the edge of fight or flight. And so even more so we're designed to deal with, with emotion and conflict with another human being. One of my favorite quotes of all time. And in doing so, we're so afraid that we will get booted out of the relationship, booted out of our family, booted out of our culture, our society, that we're constantly trying to read the room and see what other people are doing because we feel like if we can still fit in, that we're not going to be rejected or kicked to the curb because in doing so, we still have this primitive brain that says, if I'm on my own, I'm going to be devoured by wolves. Maybe not literal wolves, but maybe figurative wolves. So we are just comparing ourselves constantly to all those around us. And we've made it really easy to do that through social media. I'm not trying to say get off the social media, that sort of thing. You might be watching this on YouTube right now. But I feel like the big takeaway there is do your best to notice that you are, are seeing other people. And I might be noticing that I'm doing the comparison thing. When I recognize that, then just try to move back to being present because the only thing I have control of is me, is my life and the actions that, that I can take. Notice there I even said the actions. Thoughts are just going to come. That's one of the most fascinating things about the human brain is we're going to think things constantly. Things are going to pop into our minds and we just give things, we give our thoughts so much, we give our thoughts so much attention or we assign such meaning to our thoughts when in reality... And thoughts just happen. Our thoughts or our thoughts are our thoughts. And so the more that we just recognize a thought, don't beat ourselves up about a thought. Heck, don't even try to stop a thought. Just notice it, but then take action on the things that matter to you. And we, in one more note on that. So yeah, we're trying to compare ourselves with everybody around us because we feel like if I don't fit in, I've got this inherent 
fear that then the, the group or the tribe or the society will boot me out. And we not only do that, but we compare ourselves to this fictional version of ourselves that we may never even become. This is that I'll be happier if I'll be happier if I make a million dollars. I'll be happier if I have a really cool car. I'll be happier if I have six pack abs or a bushy head of hair or whatever that is. When in reality, we may get to that point and then realize, oh, that wasn't it. So we need to do our best to avoid these social comparisons or even comparing ourselves to this person, this idealized version of ourselves. And we need to really realize that the more we can just be okay and comfortable in the present moment and turn to things that matter, that that's really what's going to boost our emotional baseline and happiness. Uh, I got a couple more here. Number five, Dr. Kenrick says uh, he really appreciated from Sonia's book, the concept of nurturing your relationships. So he says, make time to be with friends and family members. And if you can, without your electronic devices, pay attention to them, let them know what you like about them. And when something good happens to them, be sure to share in their positive outcomes. Everybody, again, we, we are social creatures at nature, even if we feel like it is difficult for us to be social, but we crave this uh, social connection. And so look for shared experiences. Have you seen a, a movie that, that you can communicate about? Are you watching the same shows or what are your thoughts about different things? And, and share these things with curiosity. So he says, when something good happens, again, be sure to share in their positive outcomes. Practice saying, and this is so good, practice saying, I see your point if you have minor disagreements about the news or who should wash the dishes, for example. And this is where in my magnetic marriage course or in any of the things where I get to go talk about really having a connected conversation, and I lay out my four pillars of a connected conversation. The first one is assuming good intentions that no one wakes up and thinks, how can I hurt my, my partner or my, my parent? Or And again, even if you feel like that's the case, this is the formula to be able to have the conversation. And the goal of the conversation is to be heard. So if I assume that no one's trying to hurt me and pillar number two is I can't just flat out say you're wrong, even if I think they're wrong, or I can't even put out that vibe of I'm not buying this, even if I don't buy it, because the goal is to stay in the conversation. And then pillar three is to ask questions before making comments. Tell me more about that. Let me, let me know, my, help me find my blind spots and four is staying present and not running back to my bunker, not going into victim mode, not saying, okay, well, I guess uh, my opinion doesn't matter, which we so often do. And the reason I lay out those four pillars when it comes to this is when Dr. Kendrick's saying, practice saying, I see your point. Oh, now we're sniffing around the concept of empathy. So tell me more. I'm going to assume that you aren't trying to hurt me. I'm going to assume that even if you have a different opinion than mine, that that, that comes from somewhere. And so that's going to lead me to say, tell me more. I'm going to have more curiosity toward your experience. And it might even invalidate my own experience. But being able to stay present in what he says is saying, I see your point, will help you stay present and learn more about somebody. And even you can feel there might be some tension. But again, I say often, we're so afraid of contention that we avoid tension altogether. And one of the things that we can do when we're communicating with somebody else is be aware that we might start to feel a little bit of invalidation because that's part of the human experience. So Dr. Kendrick says a classic study of long-lived uh, Sardinians, Okinawans, and Seventh-day Adventists found those diverse groups had several things in common with putting family first and keeping socially engaged at the top of the list. Another study by Wing and Jeffrey found that people who started a weight loss program who paired up with a friend lost substantially more weight and kept it off as compared to those who went it alone. And the author of the book, The How of Happiness, Sonia Lou Bonrisky, had to, quote, learn to forgive as a separate point 
but it's certainly a powerful tool for maintaining relationships because yeah, this is Rust, uh, kind of be funny here. He said, because unlike you and me, our friends and relatives all occasionally screw up. Okay, two more to go. Number six, enjoy your work. The actual, uh, and he says, this actually collapses two of Lumorowski's happiness activities. Doing more activities that truly engage you, that he says, that she says, that put you in flow and committing to your goals. And he said, as he's noted in more details in one of his earlier posts, People who work hard actually enjoy their jobs and experience their work more like play. Trying to get by with the least effort is a formula to make work more and more work than play. Ooh, this one's good. This one's really good. Let me tell you where my mind goes with this. So I, I did 10 years in the computer software industry, didn't really enjoy it. And at the time, I didn't really realize that I wasn't enjoying it. I just thought this is the way that life works. So over time, get my early 30s, go back to grad school, get my master's in counseling, start doing some part-time counseling. And then over the course of the next few years, realize, oh, wow, this is what it feels like to really enjoy your job and to really be passionate about your job and to feel like I can't wait to learn more about my job. And I can't, I like talking with other people that, that like their jobs and I like helping people find jobs that they actually like. And there's a cliche that I would hear often in my office where people would say, well, I'm not happy in my job, but I work to, I live, <laughs> how does that one go? I work to live. So I work so that then I can do things fun at night or on the weekends, which I understand. And if that is where someone is, I, I, I can understand that being the goal. But I started to find that too often the people that really felt like they weren't connected in their day-to-day -day lives with their jobs were hitting the night or the weekend and they felt a little bit more out of gas. So, but then they would be able to say, well, I'll, I'll do something better next week. So then they would have that experiential avoidance of kicking the can down the road. And it wasn't until I really, really realized and embraced how much I enjoy my job and started to realize that, that when people really do find something that they care about, something that they're pretty passionate about, that then they really do enjoy going to work. And so that cliche that I would hear in my office that, well, I don't, if I started doing it for a living, whatever it is, if it was something that I enjoyed, well, then it would no longer be fun is uh, I feel like it might be a story that our brain is trying to convince us or tell us or hook us to. Because if we buy into that story or we hook to that story or thought, then we don't really have to put ourselves out there and risk the potential that we may actually have been missing out on doing a career that we didn't necessarily care for. And, and I realize that might not have made as much sense as I wanted it to. But my point is that when people really start to say, you know what I'd really like to do? Let's say therapy. I'd really like to be a therapist. I'd really like to be a writer. I'd really like to be a teacher. But then they say, but man, if I did that, then, then it would take all the fun out of it. Well, I, that's where I feel like that might not be the case. And actually, I'm not, I'm saying that might not be, I, I'm living this example of doing something that I really feel passionate about. So I really enjoy it. So if I need to work, then enjoying my work is actually not a bad thing. So, oh, that's exactly what he said again. Number six, enjoying your work. So I feel like there's a lot there. And when he talks about doing more activities that truly engage you or put you in flow, but this goes back to what I started talking about at the beginning of this episode of if you find yourself doing things that you think you are supposed to be doing, that is a socially compliant goal and your motivation for that is going to be pretty weak and ineffective because it goes against your whole sense of self for this process of unfolding or becoming yourself, even to the point of where if you are doing exercise that you don't really care about. I've had many people say, I've heard you talk about running and I've tried running and I don't really like running, but I guess I need to do that. Well, what kind of uh, experience are they going to have with running? They're not going to like it at all. 
And so then they get to even beat themselves up more of saying, man, I can't even do the activity that would be good for me. I don't even really like it. And I find, I go back to yesterday, my wife and I doing 26 or 27 miles or whatever it was through the Northern California foothill, foothills in 100 degree weather. And, and we were doing it on these road bikes. And I went decades probably where I just poo-pooed the idea of getting on a road bike because I loved running. And the more that I was enjoying the shared experience with my wife, and the more we got out on the bike, the more that I really have learned to really embrace and enjoy that. But I'll tell you before the last probably six months or a year that I really enjoyed riding um, these, this road bike with my wife. If I went out on a bike ride, I felt like, I know I should like this, but I really don't. And then I would feel like what's wrong with me where in reality we need to just start with what do you enjoy? And if it isn't cycling, if it isn't running, what is it? Do you like the high intensity interval training? Do you like the boot camp kind of classes? Because that might be the thing. And to me, those are, I don't know, they're a little bit terrifying because I feel like I'm not going to do them right. But the more I accept the fact that I don't have to do them, the more I might be a little bit more willing to try or engage. But if I'm feeling like I have to like running or I have to like cycling or I have to like the, the boot camp kind of classes, then my own brain's going to say, number one, no, I don't have to do anything. And then number two, I might be looking for more of these reasons why I don't connect with that group or I don't connect with that activity. So enjoying your work, enjoying your play, enjoying your hobbies, find the things that really matter to you. And I like that's where in this book, they talk about putting you in flow of feeling like this is something I'm really flowing with or I'm, I'm vibing with or I'm enjoying. So the last one that, that he talks about is take care of your body. And he says Lumbariski has a few subcategories, including getting regular exercise. We just talked about that. Learning to meditate. And simply acting like a happy person, going out of your way to smile and laugh, for example. So he says, go ahead and try it. Run around the house for 10 minutes and sit in the lotus position for 10 minutes and then hold your face with a smile while you do it. So that might be trying to get the best of all of those worlds in a very quick, um, a very quick action, but taking care of your body. And it isn't an all or nothing thing. I think too often we feel like we have to go completely and eat clean and exercise every day and do mindfulness and yoga, but we're definitely talking progress and not perfection when it comes to this sort of thing. If I could, I feel like I've already gone into enough detail and find exercise or activities that work for you. That's a great place to start. And I know for a while I was really talking about my acceptance and commitment therapy model that, that I embraced that has led me to do far more push-ups every day than I've ever done in my entire life. And I feel like that is it's a really good place to start is this concept of, I went forever of saying, okay, do the 100 push-ups a day, do the 100 push-up a day challenge or get the app about 100 push-ups a day. There's websites about 100 push-ups a day and download the training guide that says, here's how you're going to get to the point where you can do a set of 100 push-ups. And I failed. I didn't complete that for years. And then the more I was embracing acceptance and commitment therapy, and I was taking a look at what goals look like in the acceptance and commitment therapy realm, and instead of having the goal of even doing 100 push-ups a day, instead it was having a value of fitness. And then push-ups for being more of the vehicle. And so I went from feeling like I have to do 100 a day. So if I found myself at some point in the day and I was far from doing 100, then I would just kick the can down the road. Well, I'll start tomorrow. And if I forgot to do them tomorrow, then I might say, well, this week's out because it's already Tuesday or Wednesday. So I'll start again next Monday. That one sounds familiar. But if I started just saying, okay, I have a value of fitness and I just want to do something every day, 
then in, in reality, it could be, it could literally be five push-ups, And I could say to myself, I accomplished that goal of taking action on my fitness every day. Now our brain's going to say only five push-ups. That doesn't really matter. And, and that's where I love in the acceptance and commitment therapy world. We don't even argue with our brain on that, that point. We can easily say, very good point, brain, but not a productive thought toward my value-based goal of doing something um, with fitness every day. But what happened there was I start doing, okay, one set of 20, then one set of 25. Then as a client would leave my office, I would gently close the door, do maybe another set. And then another set. And then it took a little longer than I thought. It took a few months for this to really change the deeply rutted neural pathways of my brain. To the point of now, my path of least resistance is as a client is walking out the door, even if I can see the next client in the waiting room, I give them a little, hey, be there in a minute and gently close the door and then do push-ups. So now instead of going years where I could never figure out how to get myself to make it to at least 100 a day, now on a regular basis, we're doing 200 or 300. And so taking care of your body, first of all, finding the things that really matter to you. And then I believe it's off, it's often better to just set the goal of doing some of that activity daily. And you may even only end up doing, I don't know, one push-up. And your brain will say, we only did one. And, and that's where we get to say, we're not even arguing that. The goal was to do something every day because that we think in terms of black and white or all or nothing thinking, but we really need to learn to embrace a little bit more of that ambiguity or that gray area. So my gray area can be, I could do some days where I do honestly forget or I'm rushed for time. And so I might have a session that goes a tiny bit longer than, than I had anticipated and somebody else is right there waiting. And I know that they have a lot to process. And so there are times where I can say, I'm setting the boundary, closing the door and doing a set of pushups. And other times where I say, you know what, it's just people doing people things. We're, we're all human. And so I might only get 50 push-ups done one day or, or maybe even 25. But over time, it's going to become more of this uh, deeply rutted neuro pathway of taking action on the things that really matter. And that becomes the norm. So take care of your body. Figure out what that looks like for you, whether it's running or biking or eating or, and, and, or if it's a little bit of all of the above. And you're just introducing a little bit more each day of things that really matter to you. And I'll end with this. I talk about the concept of meditation and mindfulness often, but I'll just give it my speech in closing. And hey, look at this. I totally forgot too. If you are struggling with your mental health and it's hard to get in to see a counselor right now, which is the truth, which I love. I love the concept or the idea that mental health, the stigma around taking care of your mental health is slowly dissipating. But the problem is it's dissipating across the entire world and there aren't exactly enough therapists and counselors to go around. But you can find therapists and counselors online. And so go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. You'll get 10% off your first month's treatment. And you can easily or quickly get matched up with a therapist that, that you maybe, maybe you want to work on OCD or anxiety or depression or that sort of thing. And you can pick in the um, assessment process the type of therapist you're looking for, the kind of things that they practice and the things that you're dealing with. And they can make a good match for you. And for any reason, that's not a good match. It's really easy online to say, hey, that wasn't a fit and, and help me find a new therapist. So betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. I would highly encourage you to go take a look at that. But mindfulness, if I can just leave with one, one deep concept here of the process of mindfulness is not trying to clear your mind of thought. And I run into that so often where people say, hey, I know I'm supposed to do mindfulness or meditation, but I just can't clear my head. I can't stop thinking about things. And that's where I, I often just want to say, yeah, most people can't. I don't know people that can. 
the concept of mindfulness, though, a mindfulness practice, and, and I don't get paid for this one. There is no affiliate program or that sort of thing. But I use the Headspace app, and I try to use it as often as I can. And that might be three times a week, one week. It might be five times a week, the other week. And every now and again, we're pulling all seven days in a week. But the concept is, is brilliant. When you have a, this guided meditation experience, and I have this uh, wonderful British guy named Andy talking me through the in through the nose, out through the mouth, breaths. What's that doing? It's starting to lower my my heart rate, so it's it's removing that cortisol from my brain. That fight or that fight or flight response starts to, to lessen or lower, and I get myself really in touch with my breathing. And what am I thinking about when I'm thinking about breathing in and saying the words in, and breathing out and saying the words out in my brain? That I'm not thinking about the things that I was thinking about, if that makes sense. So I haven't stopped thought, but I brought myself back to the present moment. And I'm thinking about my breath going in through my nose and out through my breath, out through my mouth. Or you may start doing the in through the nose, out through the mouth breathing. And then there will be silence on your meditation app and your brain will just start to go. It will start to pick up. You'll start to think and think and ruminate and wonder and worry. And then in the headspace app, Andy might say, okay, now, just come back and do a little body scan. Feel your back against your chair, your butt against your seat, your feet on the ground. And so what are you doing? You're thinking about those things, not the things that you were worried about or ruminating about. So it's not trying to get rid of or clear your mind of all thought, but it's training your brain. We're talking good old muscle memory here, training your brain that when I start to find myself ruminating or worrying or trying to think my way out of a thinking problem, that I can literally just get to the point where I can sit up straight in my my. I'm already finding myself doing the, the breathing and my heart rate starting to lower and my cortisol levels are starting to recede. And the more you do that, the more your brain is looking out for you. So it knows when your heart rate is starting to elevate and you're starting to ruminate or worry that your brain already knows what's going to happen. It already says, oh, this guy's going to, he's going to bring himself back to the present pretty soon. So let's go ahead and start preparing that. And so even just that concept alone can help bring you back to the present moment far quicker than you ever even knew was possible. But it can take time to get to that point of practicing meditation where your your visceral response or your brain is literally out there thinking ahead. Your emotions are out there ahead of your logic or your ration, rational thinking. So I highly encourage you to learn to meditate. And, and so today, what do we learn? The seven things. Do something nice for somebody else. Express gratitude on a regular basis. Cultivate an optimistic outlook on life. Avoid an invidious social comparisons. Nurture your relationships, enjoy your work, and take care of your body. And that's just seven of the scientifically supported steps to happiness, according to Douglas T. Kendrick, professor of social, social psychology at Arizona State. And he's talking about the book by Sonia Lyumbarivsky, professor at the University of California, Riverside, and author of The How of Happiness, A Scientific Approach to Getting the Life You Want. So I highly encourage you to go find Douglas Kendrick's blog on psychology today. I'll have a link to that as well as the book, The How of Happiness, A Scientific Approach to Getting the Life You Wanted. All right. I hope you have an amazing week. And next week, I already, oh, go find the Waking Up the Narcissism podcast. And next week, I have an interview with my daughter, McKinley, who's coming back on the podcast and just has some really, uh, really kind of exciting things to follow up on. So until then, have an amazing week and I'll see you next time on the Virtual Health. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end The pressures of the daily grind It's wonderful Elastic waste and rubber ghost I'm floating past the midnight hour They push aside the things that matter most
explode.